This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's June. Time to start thinking of summer plans, and that includes vacations. Summer vacations are a time to get away, see new sights, and take in some gorgeous scenery. Whether you prefer city travel, mountain vistas, or beach lounging, there are some wonderful places in the world to explore. Some places are so beautiful and inspiring that they are like a paradise on Earth. Unfortunately, bad things can even happen in paradise, as you'll see in this new series. I'll take you to some fabulous locales where I share stories of the dark side of these seemingly perfect places. In this first episode, I'll take you to a gorgeous national park where campers and hikers travel from all over the world to partake of its beauty. In this setting, a series of tragic murders occurred in 1999, and when the perpetrator was identified, some bizarre true crime connections would be uncovered. Join me for this series, Murder in Paradise. This is Chapter 1, The Yosemite Murders. Carol Sund had everything all planned out. She was taking two teenage girls on a whirlwind five-day trip in early February 1999. The two girls were her 15-year-old daughter, Juliana, called Julie by her friends and family, and their 16-year-old house guest, Sylvina. Sylvina was the daughter of a longtime friend of Carol's, Raquel Peloso. Carol and Raquel had met when Carol visited Argentina in 1973 as part of a student exchange program called Youth for Understanding. The two women had stayed in touch over the years, and Carol visited her when Julie was just a year old, and Raquel's daughter, Sylvina, was also just a baby. Now, 15 years later, Sylvina was visiting the sons on a three-month trip to the U.S. She would be returning home on March 3rd, and this would be a farewell trip. Carol's son had always loved visiting the majestic Yosemite National Park. It is recognized for its impressive granite cliffs, beautiful waterfalls, its lakes, and giant sequoia groves. Located over three different counties in Northern California, it is visited each year by over 4 million campers, hikers, and sightseers. Most visitors come during the summer months, and this being February, it was the off-season. But Carol wanted to send Sylvina home, with the images of the beauty that the park held, and so decided to take the girls over the President's Day weekend. Carol lived in the northern California town of Eureka with her husband of 21 years, Jens, and their four children, of whom Julie was the oldest. After Julie was born, Jens and Carol decided to add to their family, and would eventually adopt three children— the sons became tireless advocates for adoption and child advocacy. Carol sat on the board of the Council on Adoptable Children for over a decade and worked with Eureka's court-appointed special advocate program to help abused and neglected children. Carol's family, the Carringtons, were owners of a real estate business that went back several generations. While Carol was born into a wealthy family, she and Jens were determined to make it on their own. Carol began her own real estate business while Jens, at first, drove a truck to pay the bills. Carol, Julie, and Sylvina left Eureka on February 12, 1999. Carol was planning to fit in a lot of activities in a short period of time. She was used to juggling the busy schedules of her family of six. She was highly organized and had a can-do attitude and a seemingly endless supply of energy. Carol and the girls were planning to fly to San Francisco, rent a car to drive to Yosemite, return the rental car in Modesto, and then fly back to meet Jens in San Francisco on the evening of February 16th. 
On February 12th, they landed in San Francisco and rented a bright red Pontiac Grand Prix. They drove to the central California town of Stockton in just under two hours, where they spent the night in a motel. The stopover in Stockton was necessary because Julie was participating in the American Spirit Association cheerleading competition at the University of the Pacific. While at the competition, Carol made a plan with another parent to return to UOP on her way back from Yosemite so that Julie could tour the campus. Julie was considering applying to the university, and Carol thought, while it would make the timeline a little tighter, they'd be able to pull it off. She was to meet the other woman and her teen back at the campus at 2 p.m. on Tuesday, February 16th. From there, she would need to race to the airport in time to meet Jens and her other children, who were to board a flight to Phoenix. Jens, Sylvina, and the younger children were going to visit Jens' sister and brother-in-law in Phoenix, and while there, they also planned to take Sylvina to visit another great national park, the Grand Canyon. Carol and Julie would fly home from San Francisco, as Julie needed to be back in school the following day. After the cheerleading competition ended late Sunday afternoon, Carol and the girls drove to Merced and checked into a Ramada Inn for the night. The next day, Carol made a stop at the Merced Costco to purchase some camping equipment and stock up on snack food. While there, Carol withdrew $200 from an ATM machine. Finally, they were off, driving 70 miles northeast to El Portal, California, located just inside the entrance of Yosemite National Park. February was a slow time for the park. Over 100,000 visitors passed through the tourist destination in February, but it was far from the crowds and hard to come by camping sites and motel rooms that would have been the norm during the peak summer months. Carol pulled into the Cedar Lodge on the afternoon of Valentine's Day, February 14th. The lodge was not one large building, but a series of two-story dorm-like buildings, over a half a dozen buildings in all. They were assigned to room 509 in the southwest corner of the complex. It was located far away from the lodge's office and swimming pool and the other busier parts of the complex. Their room was located on the ground floor of the building. Carol and the two teens were the only guests staying in that particular building that night. Carol was eager to take the girls into the park, but there was only one road in and out, and at this time of year, it was closed to traffic between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Having arrived after noon, Carol had to wait until the next day for their big trip into the park. The next morning, the trio left early, bundled up against the cold. There was still some snow on the ground, and they were in good spirits as they toured the park. Carol brought a camera and captured the three of them throughout the day, posing in front of Lake Merced and the granite walls and tall forest trees. Carol stood just at five foot two inches tall with short brunette hair. The two girls were also petite, only a couple of inches taller than Carol. The teen girls could pass for sisters, both with dark hair, brown eyes, and olive complexions. They also went ice skating at Curry Village. Afterwards, they shopped for some souvenirs before heading back to the Cedar Lodge. Carol called Jens to tell him about their day and to detail the plans for the next day. She promised that they would leave the university campus in enough time to meet him at the airport as planned. Before hanging up, she told him that they planned to make a quick trip into Yosemite Park one more time in the morning before leaving for the Central Valley. That evening, they went to one of Cedar Lodge's restaurants for dinner. The diner at the lodge was appropriate for families, pizza and burgers and the like, but it also held a bar that saw its share of bikers and off-duty park workers, as well as people just passing through. It was one of the only places in the area for those who were so inclined to grab a beer or a cocktail and was often busy in the evenings. At 7.30 p.m., Carol paid their bill and they headed back to their room. 
Sometime that night, there would be a knock at the door of room 509, and the three women would not be seen again for over a month. Yen's son didn't worry at first when he didn't see Carol at the airport at their designated time. His own arrival had been delayed due to bad weather. Maybe Carol got tired of waiting and sent Sylvina on ahead to Phoenix and then had flown home to Eureka. Carol was always on time, always organized. He was the one that was often forgetful, so he thought he must have mixed up the time of their meeting. Jens had Carol paged over the airport speaker system, but there was no response. Unable to wait any longer, he and his three children boarded the flight for the two-hour trip to Arizona. The next morning, Jens called home. The phone rang repeatedly, but there was no answer. Next, he called his in-laws, Francis and Carol Carrington. When he found out that they had not heard from their daughter either, fear finally began to set in. Back at the Cedar Lodge, a desk clerk checked on the room. It was orderly, and besides a bag containing some receipts and souvenirs, the room was cleared out. It looked as if its occupants had showered, left their room key behind, loaded their baggage into their car, and left. But Carol Carrington remembered that her daughter never checked out of a hotel without returning the key to the desk. It was also discovered that Julie had missed her planned tour of the campus. They had never arrived for the planned meeting with the other parent. Jens now called the California Highway Patrol and the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office and reported his wife, daughter, and Sylvina missing. A search for the three women began the following day. It's unknown whether Carol Sund would have known the history of her beloved Yosemite National Park. She and Jens had even made Yosemite their honeymoon destination when they married in 1978. The area that is now managed by the National Park Service was once the home of several indigenous tribes. Europeans first entered Yosemite Valley in the 1850s at the start of the gold rush. The area had been inhabited by the Paiute and Miwok tribes. The appearance of the European settlers caused a competition for natural resources between the tribes, and wars between them increased. The natives had called themselves Awanichi, meaning dwellers of the Awani. Later, however, the settlers began to use the name Yokimiti, or Yosemite. This was the word the Miwok used to describe their enemies, the Paiute. The word means the killers. Also unknown to Carol's son, there was an actual killer in their midst. He had been watching Carol and the girls as they arrived at the Cedar Lodge and had been tracking their movements. He would know how isolated the room was and that only three women had checked in and that there were no men accompanying them. 37-year-old Carrie Stainer would have easily been able to watch the women. He was an employee of the Cedar Lodge working as a handyman for the motel. He'd been laid off from his job in January due to it being the slow season. However, he was able to keep his $90 a month room at the lodge while unemployed. His room was located above the Cedar Lodge restaurant, where he had an easy view of visitors coming and going. Stainer would later say that he'd fantasized about capturing and killing women since he was seven years old. The day after Valentine's Day, he would put his plan into action. A little after 10 p.m. on February 15th, he knocked on the door of room 509. Stainer, looking younger than his 37 years, was over six foot tall and athletically built. He talked his way into the room, telling Carol he was there to make a repair in the bathroom. He quickly pulled a gun on the petite woman and told her he was there to rob them. Convincing Carol he was just there for money and valuables, she and the girls complied with him. He bound and gagged them without a struggle. 
he took the two teenagers into the bathroom and then returned to Carol. Taking a rope he had brought with him, he strangled her to death before carrying her body outside and placing it in the trunk of her rental car. Stainer would give several confessions to his crime, and each one was different. The following account is a combination of at least three confessions. I've left out some of the graphic details that are unnecessary out of respect for the young victims. In Stainer's first confession, he told authorities that he did not rape the two teenagers. When forensic evidence proved he was lying, he later admitted to the FBI that he had sexually assaulted both girls. After putting Carol's body in the trunk, he returned to the girls, first taking Sylvina into the bedroom, leaving Julie in the bathroom. He raped Sylvina before strangling her. Finally, he returned to Julie. Stainer, again at first, claimed he kept the women separate, not letting them know what was happening to the others at the time. In a later confession to FBI agent Jeff Rennick, Stainer claimed that the two girls were together, and he attempted to play out his violent sexual fantasies with them. If I've learned anything from researching the words and deeds of murderers, it is that you can't trust about 90% of what they say. Most of their statements are false and self-serving. So what actually happened on that terrible night will probably never be known for sure, and that is probably for the best. The following is the account as best as can be determined. What is known is that he, at some point that evening, strangled Sylvina to death as well and placed her body in the trunk with Carol's. Stainer raped Julie as well, but kept her alive unlike the other two women. It's possible that Julie was able to find a way to connect with Stainer, as some victims are able to do, in order to stay alive. He would later tell investigators that he wanted to keep her, but he knew that there was no place he could hide her. Before dawn, he wrapped Julie in a blanket that he secured with duct tape and put her in the car with him. He drove the red Pontiac with the two bodies in the trunk and drove 70 miles west to Lake Don Pedro. He took Julie up a trail over a rise, and once he'd taken her far enough away where they could not be sighted, he slit her throat, almost decapitating her in the process. Later, when interviewed by the FBI agent, he would cry when recounting Julie's murder. By spending an extended amount of time with Julie's son, he claimed to feel some remorse over her killing. He said he cut her throat instead of strangling her, as he had with the other women, so it would be quicker and she wouldn't suffer. After leaving her body under a bush, he then drove the car over 50 miles to the north. He found a dirt logging road off of the Sonora Pass. He'd planned to drive the car to an isolated reservoir to sink it, but the car got stuck on a dirt road. It wedged on a tree stump just a few hundred feet off of the highway. The sun was coming up, so Stainer left it there and fled. Taking his backpack, he walked down to Highway 108 to a convenience store where he called a cab. He told the driver he'd been stranded by a friend and needed to get back to work in El Portel, about 75 miles away. She told him it would be a costly trip, but he said he didn't mind. He paid the $170 cab fare with the cash he'd taken from Carol's wallet. As they entered the national park, Stainer pointed out a cabin and told the cab driver, I once spotted Bigfoot there. He seemed completely serious, and she found him a little odd and creepy. She dropped him at the Yosemite Lodge, where he'd directed her. He then caught a bus back to the Cedar Lodge. The Mariposa County Sheriff's Office called in the FBI. Over 50 FBI agents eventually joined in the search, working the case as a kidnapping or carjacking. Since it seemed as if the women had left the motel, and perhaps as Carol had told her husband, they might have drove back into the park that morning, 
One theory was that they got robbed or carjacked along the road. By mid-March, thousands of square miles in Mariposa, San Joaquin, and Stanislaw County had been searched. Methamphetamine production and sales in the area had been on the rise since it first showed its ugly face in the early 1990s. Because of this, law enforcement was working on the theory that a meth head or group of druggies had accosted the women in order to rob them for drug money. There were many prisons located in the Central Valley of California, and when felons were paroled, they would sometimes find their way into the Yosemite Valley, where it was easy to live off the grid in one of the ramshackle cabins or cheap apartment buildings there. The search would include the Herculean task of finding and interviewing scores of parolees with records for theft, assault, and robbery. Even when they were located, it was difficult to know if they were being honest about their actions and whereabouts when the women went missing. In describing this process, one agent would say, these guys are pathologically incapable of telling a straight story. Nevertheless, the investigators didn't have a lot to go on, and so continued to work this angle in hopes of uncovering leads. On February 19th, there was finally some movement in the case. Almost 90 miles away from Yosemite, a high school student found the credit card insert of Carol's son's wallet in a Modesto neighborhood. Because Carol was supposed to have dropped her rental car in Modesto before flying back to San Francisco, it was surmised that she might have gotten as far as the Central Valley town before being met with foul play. Her credit cards, health card, and driver's license were all still in the wallet that was found tossed into a median strip in a busy intersection. Search parties with dogs were called in, but nothing further was found. The investigation was once again stalled. Carol's son's parents announced the offer of a $250,000 reward for information leading to their loved one's safe return. Soon after, they put up an additional $50,000 for information about the whereabouts of the missing car. Kerry Stanner went about covering his tracks. It was he who had traveled to Modesto and tossed Carol's son's wallet into the street, hoping it would confuse investigators. He'd also returned to the stuck car on the logging road two days after dumping it there and set it on fire. While the car was almost completely destroyed by the fire, the location was so remote that it was not spotted by anyone. It wouldn't be until a month after the wallet was found that there would be another break in the case. On March 19th, a 40-year-old man who lived in nearby Longbarn stopped in the woods for some target practice with his 22 rifle and came upon the burned-out car. He called the California Highway Patrol to tell them about what he had discovered off an old logging road near the top of the Sonora Pass. Less than an hour after the phone call, the Highway Patrol confirmed that the car was the red Pontiac rented by Carol Sund. By the next morning, the FBI would announce that two bodies had been found in the trunk of the automobile. Cadaver dogs were brought in to continue the search. There was still one body missing, but they didn't find the third woman. One item they did find was a roll of undeveloped film that had somehow escaped the fire and was found near the car. On it were photos taken of Carol, Sylvina, and Julie during their trip to Yosemite. The last picture showed all three of them hanging out in their Cedar Lodge motel room, perhaps only minutes before Carrie Stanner arrived. Their families would be grateful to have these photos of their loved ones in their last happy moments. The body of Carol's son was identified through dental records, but it would take longer to identify Sylvina, as her records would have to be sent from Argentina. However, the investigators still had no suspects, and they weren't even sure where exactly the crime had been committed. On March 24th, the last piece of the puzzle would fall into place when an anonymous letter was received at the FBI's Modesto office. 
The letter had been postmarked almost 10 days earlier on March 15th, but somehow got lost in the mail. It contained one piece of paper with directions that would lead searchers to Julie's son's body. The anonymous letter writer referred to we, leading investigators to conclude, as they had previously suspected, that there was more than one perpetrator. Of course, later, it would be determined that it was only a ruse used by Stainer to throw investigators off of the track. He would even brag that he had conned someone else into licking the envelope so that his DNA would not be found on the letter. While some might think that telling authorities where to find Julie's son's body points to remorse on his part, he was also taunting investigators and also cruelly wrote about Julie. We had fun with this one. The following day, Julie's remains were found up a steep incline off of Highway 49, overlooking the Don Pedro Reservoir. Incredibly, investigators had questioned the murderer not once, but twice, and had a third encounter with him as well, without ever suspecting Carrie Stainer. Two weeks into the search, investigators returned to the Cedar Lodge and interviewed all of its employees and residents, including Stainer. They found him helpful, but not too eager, bland, and affable. No alarm bells went off. They re-interviewed him on May 19th, over a month into the investigation, this time at his girlfriend's home. Again, he seemed an unlikely suspect. He had a girlfriend and was able to carefully lay out his movements the week the women went missing without a problem. Stainer had been hired back at the Cedar Lodge in March and was present when investigators returned once again in late May. This time, he even assisted investigators in gathering evidence by letting them into the motel's rooms using his passkey. They were looking for a dark pink blanket that might match the one Julie's body had been wrapped in. Others, however, did get a weird vibe during encounters with Stainer. In March, a reporter for San Francisco radio station KGO was covering the story of the Sun Peloso murders and staying at the Cedar Lodge. Mary Ellen Geist recalled taking a soak at the motel's hot tub during her visit when she was joined by a tall man wearing a black Speedo bathing suit. The man introduced himself to Geist, saying his name was Carrie Stainer. He told her she might have heard of him as he was the brother of Stephen Stainer, a boy who had received media attention in 1980 after returning home eight years after being abducted by a pedophile. Geist felt that he was trying to get some kind of sympathy from her, but instead of feeling badly for the man, she recalled feeling increasingly uncomfortable in his presence. He hadn't done anything in particular, she later reported, but I became very nervous. She quickly excused herself and ran into her room. I double-bolted my door and pushed a table and chairs against it, I got the creeps, she remembered. Carrie Stainer is the older brother of Stephen Stainer, a seven-year-old who disappeared from a Merced street in December of 1972. Carrie was older than his brother by four years. There were five children in the Stainer family, with Carrie being the oldest. His parents, Kay and Delbert Stainer, had owned an almond ranch near the Merced River, until a drought forced them to leave it and move into the town of Merced, where Delbert could find employment. The family was close-knit, and at first, moving from the country into town was a difficult transition. Carrie, described as quiet by almost all of his neighbors and classmates, was a loner. His little brother Stephen looked up to him. Carrie would say he felt partly responsible for his brother's kidnapping because he should have been watching out for him better. Carrie Stainer, however much as he might try to play up the abduction of his younger brother in his own problems later on, 
had issues before this even occurred when he was 11. He had been diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder when he was only three. He would compulsively pull out his own hair, creating a bald spot at the top of his head. He was prescribed medicine to help him stop this habit, but it would continue into his teen years, and he would constantly wear a baseball hat to cover the bald patch. He admitted to having violent fantasies about capturing and killing women, beginning at the age of seven, long before Stephen was abducted. He would later accuse an uncle of molesting him at the age of 11. It is unclear whether this has ever been corroborated. It's interesting to note that he claims this happened around the same time that Stephen was kidnapped. Carrie Stanner was a talented artist and played on his school's baseball team. There were incidents as a teen where Stanner would strip naked and expose himself to girls as a joke or a prank, or maybe something more creepy. He once did it in front of a group of girls, and another time, a neighbor girl accused him of exposing himself to her one night when she was spending the night with his sisters. He crept into the room where she was sleeping, and she woke up to find him before her completely naked. When she yelled at him and told him to get out, he fled. The girl was only 13. When the same girl was 17, she was on a camping trip that Stainer also attended when she found him naked underneath her cot. Again, she warned him away from her, and he left. Carrie Stainer would begin to smoke marijuana regularly and later adopt a nudist lifestyle. At the time he was living and working at the Cedar Lodge, he was a frequent visitor to the clothing-optional resort Laguna del Sol. He also liked to strip and lay on a rock next to the Merced River. His sunbathing spot was located near a hairpin turn on Highway 140, about two miles from the Cedar Lodge. Stainer seemed unconcerned that passing families on their way to Yosemite could see him in the altogether. The Stephen Stainer kidnapping case became a nationwide story, even inspiring a book and a movie titled I Know My Name is Stephen, after he miraculously returned in 1980. However, eight years earlier in 1972 when he disappeared, the story of the missing boy was barely a blip on the radar. His family reported him missing, and within a couple of weeks, there was no further action taken by authorities to find him. Stephen had been approached on his way home from school by 40-year-old pedophile Kenneth Parnell. Parnell, along with a half-wit accomplice, Irvin Murphy, were looking for a son for Parnell when they happened upon the little boy with the light brown hair. Telling him he was a minister, Parnell asked the boy if he'd care to donate to his church. Stephen, a trusting little boy, told the man his mother might, upon which Parnell told him to get into the car, and he'd drive him home to ask. Instead, he took the boy to a trailer park 25 miles away in Kathy's Valley. Incidentally, Stephen Stainer's grandfather lived not a hundred yards away in another trailer. Had the media at the time broadcast the description of Stephen Stainer, as would happen today, he might have been quickly found. Stephen spent a few weeks hidden in the trailer park and then was taken to Parnell's quarters at the Yosemite Lodge. His hair was dyed so he wouldn't be recognized, and he was drugged with sleeping pills during the times Parnell had to report to work. He worked as a bookkeeper for the Curry Company that runs the concessions at Yosemite National Park. Parnell would later tell the boy that his family had given him away because they couldn't afford to raise him. Later still, he would tell them that his parents had died. Meanwhile, the Stainers were falling apart. Not knowing what had happened to their little boy, they began to unravel. Delbert Stainer fell into a depression and could not hold a job. Kay Stainer was forced to take a job to support her family. The strain caused the couple to break up for a time and contemplate divorce. 
but as they were followers of the Mormon faith, they didn't believe it was the right thing to do and reconciled. Delbert, however, remained depressed and more than once contemplated suicide. Kerry would later say that he felt invisible and neglected by his parents during this time. After only a few weeks at Yosemite, Parnell moved Stephen 150 miles north to Santa Rosa and renamed him Dennis Gregory Parnell. Stephen would spend the next eight years with Parnell, during which time he was repeatedly raped. Eventually, Stephen was left to fend for himself when Parnell was no longer afraid he'd try to return home or escape. Parnell didn't parent Stephen, but allowed him to live as a miniature adult. Stephen became addicted to tobacco by the age of 10 and was already drinking whiskey by the sixth grade. He learned to smoke marijuana from the man he now called Dad. As Stephen got older, Parnell was no longer interested in him sexually. They had moved several times, finally ending up in the Northern California mountain town of Manchester living in a cabin. Stephen was attending Point Arenas High School under his assumed name. Parnell began to solicit Stephen's help in securing a new boy for his family. Stephen refused, so Parnell talked another boy, Sean Porman, age 16, into helping him. On February 14, 1980, Parnell and Porman kidnapped five-year-old Timothy White on his way home from school from the streets of Ukiah. Parnell dyed Timothy's blonde hair dark brown and hid him in his cabin. At first, Stephen played big brother to the little boy. A statewide search was being conducted to find Timothy White, with news programs broadcasting his picture hourly. There was no television in Parnell's cabin, and Stephen kept the boy entertained by reading and playing with him. But he began to feel bad for the little boy when he would cry for his parents. Stephen decided to find a way to get the younger boy home. On March 1, 1980, while Parnell was at work, Stephen walked and hitchhiked with Timothy 40 miles back to Ukiah. He tried to have the five-year-old direct him back to his house, but when that failed, Stephen took him to the police station. Still not intending to alert anyone to his own plight, Stephen simply wanted to leave the boy in front of the station where he could walk in and be saved. Timmy, too afraid to enter on his own, ran back out and went crying to Stephen. An officer saw the child and approached him and Stephen. When the officer realized the boy was Timmy White, who they'd been searching for for over two weeks, he began to question Stephen. Stephen gave the officer his name and told him that he'd been missing from Merced for over seven years. At first, Stephen wouldn't identify Kenneth Parnell as his abductor. When they were finally able to pry the information from him, they found and arrested Kenneth Parnell. The following day, the police broke the news to the Stainer family that their long-lost son and brother, Stephen, was alive and well. The media quickly got wind of the miracle, and scores of cameras and reporters descended on the Stainer home. Stephen Stainer was hailed as a hero for saving Timmy White and bringing him home to his grateful family. Kerry Stainer at first seemed thrilled to have his little brother home. The whole family was caught up in the media storm. However, later, he would say that Stephen had begun to eat up all the adulation he received, and it made him hard to live with. Kerry also had a problem when it was revealed that Stephen had been raped for many years by his abductor. The subject was taboo in the Stainer house. They never talked about it, and Stephen never received any therapy for the trauma he'd undergone for almost a decade. Kerry wondered if it meant his brother was a homosexual and distanced himself from him. He even tried to procure female sexual partners for Stephen to help cure him. Kerry Stainer became jealous of the attention Stephen received from the media, from the public, and from the family. He felt shoved into the background 
although he never voiced his bitterness to anyone at the time. He also became resentful that Stephen was not being held to the rules his parents set for the rest of his siblings. Having grown up with no boundaries, Stephen came back a hard drinker and a heavy smoker who cursed with abandon and could not be persuaded to follow rules. On the other hand, Kerry Stainer seemed to enjoy the notoriety he received as the brother of Stephen Stainer. He even began to introduce himself that way to new acquaintances. Kenneth Parnell was tried and sentenced for kidnapping both Stephen and Timmy White in 1982. He was not charged with sexual assault and was given only seven years in prison. He was released after serving only five. It's believed that he was not charged with rape due to the stigma at the time of male-on-male rape. They believed they were protecting Stephen's privacy by not identifying or prosecuting the crime. Both Porman and Murphy, Parnell's two accomplices in the kidnapping, were charged with lesser offenses. Now it was the beginning of the summer season at Yosemite National Park, and Carrie Stainer, still not on the FBI's radar, seemed to have gotten away with a multiple murder. A friend would later say that Stainer made a strange comment during that time. I'm already famous. People just don't know it yet, he would cryptically say. When asked what he meant, he just smiled and said nothing more. Whatever demons might have possessed Stainer to so cruelly end the lives of three innocent women, they had not yet been extinguished. On Wednesday, July 21st, a 26-year-old biologist left her job in the Yosemite Valley at 5 p.m. to return to a cabin in the woods that she shared with her boyfriend. Joey Ruth Armstrong had begun working for the Yosemite Institute in December of 1998 as an environmental educator. She had moved from her temporary housing in Yosemite to her new home in Foresta just two months earlier. Foresta is a small community located in a secluded valley just a few miles from El Portel. Joey was a passionate environmentalist and loved spending time in nature, hiking, and backpacking. She had most recently climbed a third of the way up the face of El Capitan, the sheer cliff wall that is among the most iconic structures in Yosemite National Park. The petite strawberry blonde was an ever-smiling presence. According to her friends and family, her friendliness was matched only by her unlimited energy. On July 21st, Joey found herself home alone for the first time since she moved into the home in May. She had been afraid to stay alone and was invited to stay with a friend while her boyfriend Michael was away, but decided to conquer her fear and stay home. She had already spent one night alone with no problem and was planning to spend the rest of the week with a friend in the San Francisco Bay Area. She began packing her truck for the trip to the coast and called her boss to let her know that she would be dropping off some work files to her home on her way out of town. When Joey didn't arrive by 7.30 p.m., her boss became concerned, and her husband, Sonny Montague, decided to take the short walk to her cabin to check in on her. When he arrived, he found her front and back doors open and her stereo playing, but Joey was nowhere to be seen. Her truck was still parked in front of the cabin. He called out to her in the area around the cabin, but got no answer. He returned home. Around the same time Montague was looking for Joey, a member of the Yosemite Fire Department recalled seeing a light blue and white International Scout Jeep parked near her cabin. A few hours after Joey disappeared from her cabin, another Yosemite employee picked up a hitchhiker several miles away on Highway 140, standing next to a blue and white International Scout. He said he'd broken down on the way back from Yosemite Valley. He was dropped off at Cedar Lodge. An employee of Cedar Lodge saw Kerry Stainer being dropped off about 9 p.m. As he left work around midnight, 
he saw Stainer's white and blue International Scout parked on the side of the road. Joey's friend, who was awaiting her arrival in Sausalito, called the police at 3 a.m. when she still had not arrived. She filed a missing persons report and then called Joey's mother, Leslie Armstrong. By 7.30 a.m., park rangers were dispatched to her cabin and found the same scene Sunny Montague had found the night before. The doors were still ajar, the stereo was still playing, and her truck was still parked in front. They found no sign of a struggle except for a pair of men's sunglasses found on the living room floor that were bent. Searchers combed the area around the cabin, and at 1.30 p.m., they found Joey Armstrong's body, partially submerged in a drainage ditch just a few hundred yards from her cabin. She had what looked to be defensive wounds on her wrist from a knife or other sharp object. When they pulled her body from the water, they saw a gruesome sight. Joey Armstrong's head was missing. It didn't take long for the firefighter to come forward to report the distinctive white and blue jeep he'd seen the previous day parked near the cabin. A be on the lookout was broadcast, and by 4.30 p.m., Carrie Stainer was found by park rangers. They found Stainer near his parked jeep at his favorite nude sunbathing spot. When the two female park rangers approached him, he was naked, lying on a rock, and smoking a joint. They confiscated the marijuana and began to question him. He gave his name as Kerry Stainer and showed them his ID, telling them he worked at the Cedar Lodge. Today was Thursday, his day off, and he was just enjoying the sunshine, he explained. They questioned him about his whereabouts the day before, asking him if he'd been near Foresta. He said he hadn't been anywhere near that area the day before and agreed to a search of his Jeep. They wanted to search his backpack as well, but at first he refused, finally agreeing once they told him they would just get a warrant. The park rangers would later say that their first thought was that the backpack was the right size and weight to contain a human head. But they only found items anyone might carry in a backpack, including a camera, a beer, a harmonica, a lighter, and a package of zigzag papers. The rangers kept the backpack, took a few photos of the jeep, and sent Stainer on his way. Meanwhile, investigators discovered the missing head about 40 feet away from where they'd found Joey's body. It was submerged in a small stream. The investigators returned to the cabin where they collected hair and fiber evidence that they hoped would help identify her murderer. News reports were already beginning to speculate about a connection between the Sun Peloso murders earlier that year with the murder of the Yosemite naturalist. That evening, investigators arrived at the Cedar Lodge to question Stainer once again. He maintained that he had not been anywhere near Foresta Road the previous day. They had their suspicions, but not enough to detain him on. Fresh tire tracks were found near the cabin that were not made by Joey's truck. Investigators took pictures and compared them to the tire tracks from Stainer's Jeep. They matched. The next morning, they returned to the Cedar Lodge to bring Stainer in for questioning. But for the first time in 18 months, Carrie Stainer had not reported for work. He knew that the heat was on, and he hightailed it out of the Yosemite Valley. The media got wind about the Cedar Lodge maintenance man who was wanted for questioning in the Joey Armstrong murder. Now the public was more than alarmed. Was there a serial killer operating amongst the beauty and wonder of Yosemite National Park? More news programs picked up the story, and it quickly became headline news on radio and television. Stainer had traveled three hours northwest to the Laguna del Sol nudist resort in Wilton. He checked in on Friday afternoon and paid for a two-night stay. There were no televisions in the guest rooms at the resort, and the story had not hit the morning edition of the Sacramento Bee yet, 
so he was unaware that his mug was being plastered all over the news. The resort manager was just having her morning coffee when a member called and told her to turn on the news. The man they were looking for was staying at the resort, she said. She'd seen him the following evening at the resort's clubhouse. She'd spoken with him briefly, having recognized him from other times he'd been a guest. He'd mentioned how things were, quote, getting weird. A lot of things have changed recently, and I need to get out of Dodge, he told her. The manager, Patty Sailors, called the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office to report that one Kerry Stainer was currently a guest at the Laguna del Sol nudist camp. Fortunately, when FBI agents arrived, Kerry Stainer, planning to leave right after breakfast, had dressed in jeans and a T-shirt before arriving at the resort restaurant. They approached him and asked him to accompany them to FBI headquarters in Sacramento for questioning. He complied without incident. On the way to Sacramento, agents noticed a fresh cut on Stainer's hand. It wasn't long after arriving at headquarters that they were surprised when he readily confessed to the murder of Joey Armstrong. Waiving his rights to an attorney, Stainer spent the next several hours recounting the details of the previous Wednesday. He told him that he'd been in the area only because it was where he'd previously sighted Bigfoot. He described how he'd parked his truck and was walking near the cabins when he noticed Joey packing her vehicle. He saw her going back and forth from her house with items, and she seemed to be alone. He walked up to her and began talking to her, telling her about the Bigfoot sighting. By this time, he was standing on her porch, and when she turned to go into the house, he took the twenty-two revolver out of his backpack and placed it to the back of her head. He had assembled a kit that he kept in his backpack, including the gun, duct tape, and a knife. He then took her inside the house where she struggled with him in the bedroom, as he gagged and duct-taped her. Afterwards, he took her to his truck and placed her in the back seat. She continued to fight him the whole way. He had planned to take her up the hill, where they could not be seen. But as he'd been unable to duct-tape her feet, she began to kick and thrash and managed to propel herself out of the open window of the jeep. She took off running toward the road, but he quickly threw the jeep into park and ran after her, catching up before she could get to safety. She still continued to fight him, until he finally subdued her by cutting her throat. He dragged her to the canal and then returned to his truck, moving it out of sight before returning to the body and decapitating it. The murder of Joey Armstrong had been captured and they had his confession, but they would be even more surprised at the next turn of events. Stainer then confessed to the murders of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. The Sund, Carrington, and Peloso families were now informed that the monster that had murdered their loved ones was in custody and had confessed. They praised the FBI for catching the murderer, but expressed regret that if he had been on their radar sooner, Joey Armstrong's life might have been spared. Even though he'd confessed to all four murders, Kerry Stainer pled not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers claimed that he had a history of mental illness, citing the early diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder, and also claimed their client had been suffering from the effects of being sexually abused as a child. Stainer would claim that his uncle, Jerry Stainer, had sexually molested him when he was 11 years old. Stainer lived with his uncle in the late 80s when he was about 28 years old. They shared a small house in Merced, just a block away from his uncle's glass business, where Stainer was employed. On the day after Christmas, 1990, Jerry Stainer was found dead of multiple gunshot wounds in his home. 
His truck and wallet were missing, as was his dog. Kerry Stainer, when interviewed by the Merced Sun Star about the murder, would say he recalled a drifter hanging around near the home. I think it was just a low-life bum who was in town and didn't have any money and was caught in the act, he was quoted as saying. In less than 24 hours, the truck was found with the keys still in the ignition and the gun on the front seat. His uncle's dog was curled up asleep on the front floorboard. The truck was found just over a mile away behind a gas station, located at the same intersection where Stephen Stainer had been abducted in 1972. Now family members would wonder if Kerry had something to do with his uncle's murder. It was puzzling. Had he gotten revenge on his uncle for molesting him as a boy? But if he had been molested by his uncle, why would he become his housemate and employee as an adult? And if he himself had been molested by a male relative, why would he be so embarrassed about his brother being a victim as well? Again, it's a claim made by Stainer that is unknown if true or not. To bolster his case for insanity, Stainer would also admit to being a pedophile, again, without any evidence to back up his claim. He requested child pornography in exchange for his full confession as a way of proving this assertion. His request was denied. Kerry Stainer was tried in Santa Clara County when it was determined he could not get an unbiased jury in Mariposa County. He was found sane and was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder in 2001. In 2002, he was sentenced to death and was sent to San Quentin State Prison, where he may remain for decades before or if his sentence is ever carried out. Some would continue to cite the kidnapping of Stephen Stainer as a factor in Kerry Stainer's becoming a multiple murderer. While I tend to reject this given the fact that he himself admits to having violent fantasies about women from long before his brother disappeared, there are some factors to be considered regarding his actions to the return of his brother. Stainer did reportedly resent the fame his brother achieved upon returning home and being hailed a hero. Kerry Stainer always felt like he was in the background, overshadowed by his brother's disappearance and then his miraculous return. This, of course, is probably true. The most frequent word heard to describe Stainer throughout my research of this case was quiet. Some would have a hard time remembering anything about him at all, almost as if he was invisible. I think he tried to make a name for himself on the coattails of his brother at first by constantly identifying himself as the brother of Stephen Stainer. He was still doing this the month after he killed Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. He also continued to try and convince people he had seen Bigfoot and even used this as his opening line to size up his last victim, Joey Armstrong. Most people naturally wouldn't be very impressed and might even think he was a bit odd. He also liked to parade around nude and had begun doing this as a teen. Again, perhaps another way to be seen in the most literal sense of the word. Perhaps if he could shock people in this way, they would finally notice him. He tried to use his crimes after the fact to become famous himself, giving interviews to several reporters and news programs, including Lisa Gibbons. It was only after the program aired and he saw that he was being described as an evil monster by the host and its viewers did he stop granting interviews. He may have succeeded in becoming well-known, but he'd badly miscalculated if this was his intention. Unlike his brother Stephen, who was at first a tragic figure and a victim, and then became a hero, Kerry Stainer would simply be known as a predator and a cold-blooded monster who murdered four beautiful women for no apparent reason. Finally, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many elements in this story seem to have connections to each other. 
Kenneth Parnell was an employee of Yosemite National Park and lived in employee housing when he abducted Stephen Stainer. Carrie Stainer was living and working in Yosemite when he began hunting women and killing them. Timothy White was abducted on Valentine's Day. Carrie Stainer identified Carol, Julie, and Sylvina as his first victims on Valentine's Day. If Stainer did kill his Uncle Jerry, he abandoned his truck in the same intersection his little brother had been abducted from 18 years earlier. Stephen Stainer died from the result of a motorcycle accident in 1989 at the age of 24. He had married Jody Edmondson when he was 20, and they had two children, Ashley, born in 1985, and Stephen Jr. in 1987. At the time of his death, he seemed to have pulled his life together. He'd quit drinking and joined the Mormon church, converting to his parents' faith. Timothy White died at the age of 35 in Santa Clarita, California. Perhaps it was the ordeal of having been kidnapped by a stranger at such a young age that caused him to want to go into law enforcement. He was serving as a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy when he died suddenly of a pulmonary embolism. He was married and had two children. Kenneth Parnell, at age 71 and in ill health and living in Berkeley, tried to convince his caretaker to help him abduct another boy. She pretended to agree to help him and instead set up a sting operation with authorities. When he was arrested, he told them that he only wanted a family. He was sentenced to 25 years to life under California's Three Strikes Law. He died in Vacaville State Prison in 2008. Three memorial services were held for Carol and Julie Sund, one in Eureka, another in Sonora, and the last held in Modesto, where so many law enforcement personnel and volunteers had spent weeks searching for them. The town had adopted them as their own and wanted a chance to say goodbye. Carol was remembered as a dynamo who was a wonderful mother and a beloved wife. She was also remembered as an advocate for abused and neglected children. Her husband Jens gave her a loving tribute. He said she inspired him to be a better man and a great dad. He would have a hard time filling her shoes, but he knew the best way to honor her memory was to continue to be a devoted dad to their three remaining children. Julie's son was memorialized by her friends as a gifted musician playing both piano and violin and who'd been learning to play guitar not long before her death. She was also an athlete competing on her cheerleading team and a caring friend. Her father recalled how she'd written individual notes to each of her friends and left them in their lockers on the last day of the previous school year. They would long cherish the notes in which Julie told each person how special they were to her and how much she loved them. Solvina was returned to Cordoba, Argentina on April 25th. The owner of the San Diego Chargers football team donated the use of his private jet to fly her body home to her parents. Police had to rope off the downtown streets to accommodate the large number of people who wanted to say goodbye. Her family, while mired in their grief at losing their beautiful 16-year-old daughter, said having her returned home was a huge relief to them. Friends and family remembered Sylvina as a girl who loved to dance and compete in dance competitions. She also loved music. Her favorite artists were the Spice Girls and New Kids on the Block. She'd planned to study biology in college. Carol's parents, Carol and Frances Carrington, were deeply affected by the loss of their daughter and granddaughter. They spent every day at the trial as difficult as it was to hear the details of the horrendous crime. A good friend of mine was able to attend one day of the hearing as it was held locally here in San Jose, California. 
she was able to talk briefly with Carol Carrington to express her condolences and was struck by her strength and her grace. Carol's parents started the Carol's Son Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation. They realized that the financial resources they had at their disposal allowed them to, among other things, offer reward money to help keep the case before the media and the public. They also realized that others with missing loved ones often did not have the same opportunity. The foundation was founded to help families without economic means to offer rewards for information in order to help law enforcement to locate missing loved ones. To find out more, you can log on to carolsundfoundation.com. I've included a link in the show notes. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.